Lord, every ounce of life in us is a miracle from you, of light, spiritual light in this whole universe is a miracle from you. And Lord, as we prepare to open your word, we know that every candela that for your word to reach into our hearts needs a miracle too. So Lord, we ask you, as we did in the words of that song, to send forth your word. Not just, Lord, as something that we hear, there's something which penetrates to the very heart of our souls and sets us free. It floods light into our souls, Lord, so that we can be instruments that flood light into this world. Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. For your glory's sake. Amen. We're actually uh, in the middle of a series in the letter from James, a letter which is called James, which is uh, sent to Christians all over the world in his day, and therefore very appropriate for us to look at, as we're gathered from all over the world, in fact, with quite an international congregation. Let me read to you from James chapter 2, then, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without de uh, deeds is dead. I want to describe a place to you. See if you can guess where it is. This place has countless people in it. People from every tribe and nation. Every single one of those people has seen God 
face to face. Every single one of those people has bowed the knee to God, has acknowledged his supremacy and power and his utter goodness and perfection. Every one of those people has acknowledged God's perfect justice, has seen God's perfect, unstoppable plan to save a people for himself through the atoning death of Christ. Every one of them. Where is it? No, it's not. It's hell. See, I'd love to think that hell was unpopulated. But the Bible is painfully clear it is very heavily populated. Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, said Jesus. Now, hell's not a place of ignorance either. Hell is actually a place of perfect knowledge. It's a place where God's supremacy and goodness and mercy is acknowledged every day for all eternity by people who have rejected him forever. And you know, most people in hell, as far as I can tell from the scriptures, are surprised to be sent there. The overwhelming sense that Jesus gives, especially, is that those to whom he says, away from me, I never knew you, are amazed at that. The road to hell is populated by people who think they are okay. People who may be full of knowledge, people who maybe even think that they are worshipping the living God, but who actually are marching naively to destruction. There is a terrible picture then that is painted for us throughout the pages of the Scriptures of people caught by surprise by hell. And it would be naive in the extreme to think that we uniquely in the world are a place where nobody ever could be caught by surprise. That's the, that's the terrible picture that James has in his mind this week as he's writing this letter. You know, last week we saw how he was... Uh, concerned about favoritism in the church. He was concerned, wasn't he, that the rich and powerful people were being honoured while, while poor people were being ignored and despised. And, and this week, in, in a sense, he's continuing that theme, that theme of the necessity for compassion towards others. But he is actually broadening and profoundly deepening what he has to say. And I want us to catch that this morning. He's broadening what he has to say because he's going to talk to us about the value of all deeds, any single deed that we do in our lives. 
not just a few particular ones, though he will use one particular example. And he's deepening his argument profoundly because he, he wants us to start to get to the root of what it means to be saved at all. This morning, James is not saying to us, I want you to be better Christians. We would fundamentally misunderstand this passage if, he was say, if we thought he was saying that. He is saying to, you, to us, I want you to be Christians full stop. I want you to be Christians. The road to hell, he is saying, is populated with people who profess faith like you and I, and yet he says are no better than demons. Verses 14 to 19 then. James is going to tell us very clearly what faith is not. Faith, he says, is not words without actions. Faith is not words without actions. He begins in, the, in verses 14 to 17 with a statement followed by an illustration. First of all, his statement. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? You know, although in English that, that question, can such a faith save him, could be answered by the answer, yes, Actually, the original doesn't allow that. James has phrased his question specifically, expecting the answer, no. Such a faith cannot save anyone. So. And then he illustrates what he means in verses 15 to 17. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Slightly different illustration from last week's illustration. Remember, last week we were, uh, we, we were talking about people who come in to the church who, who we don't know their status, really. This week, uh, James is talking about a brother or a sister. The problem here is not so much that the poor person is overtly despised, as we saw last week, but that actually the expression of goodwill that we give towards that person is obviously hollow and insincere. I'll pray for you, we say meaning I couldn't care less about you really, but in order to sound holy and to salve my conscience in church, I'll mumble something uh, appropriate and then turn my back on your real needs. And that sort of faith, says James, is dead. Not weak. Not moribund. It's dead. person whose life is characterized by that attitude is a spiritual corpse, you say. They might pray the most beautiful prayers, they might give generously to the, to the church, they might know their Bible backwards, they might have had the most amazing spiritual experiences, they might wear a dog collar, they might live in the manse, 
They might even preach to the church, but they are dead, he says. They are heading down the broad path to destruction. I, I don't want to spend time this week at length thinking about how we can care for one another. There is value in that. We looked at that a, bit, a little bit last week. Because this morning I want us to get to the very depths of what it means to be a Christian, as James describes it here. For that purpose, just from this illustration, I want to notice one thing. It's a phrase that James repeats in verses 14 and 16. What good is it? He says, King James Version says, what doth it profit? You could say, what reward is there? What, what advantage is there in that? And in verse 14, in that phrase clearly means, where is the advantage to the person who has faith but no works, doesn't it? Must mean that. At first sight, the second what good is it seems to mean what good is it to the person that you've sent on their way with nothing. But actually, when we see that James is actually just amplifying what he said in verse 14, we realize the what good is it that he's saying is really focused on the person who professes to have faith and does nothing. He's saying, where's the advantage to the person who offers good wishes with no help? He's pointing out, you see, that the greatest loser in this interaction that he has portrayed between a starving, unclothed person and uh, another believer is not the hungry, naked person. They may well be in just such a, in, in a similarly bad situation for a while because they haven't been helped. But the hypocritical person has displayed in themselves, he says, a far deeper poverty which if it is not reversed, will be eternal. What reward is in that? He says. And then he gives us the answer. Verse 17, In the same way faith by itself, it is not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. There's absolutely no advantage for that person in this life or the next. Something terribly serious he's saying, isn't it? Exposes us right at our hearts. It's absolutely vital for our eternal well-being, every single one of us here, that we understand clearly what James is saying. The first thing that James actually gets out of the way is a very common excuse. Here's the excuse, then, set out in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Actually, if you follow the flow of, of what he's saying, there's a problem with this sentence, because up to this point and beyond it, James has been talking about people who claim to have faith themselves but have no deeds. Why, then, does he make this Hypocrite, uh, this, this, this person that he's talking about saying, I have deeds. Surely he should have said, uh, I have faith, you have deeds, that this objector is, uh, is raising. 
Well, the best explanation, I think, though it's a bit of a, a, a difficult text, is that James is actually saying something like this. James is suggesting that the uh, person who's making an excuse should say something like, surely some people have gifts of faith and some people have gifts of work. After all, isn't there a gift of faith in the Bible? Isn't there a gift of showing mercy? You're demanding too much of us, James, if you expect us to put both of those things together in the same person. You're ignoring the diversity of gifts which the Lord gives us. Some people have faith, some have deeds. Let's enjoy the diversity. James says no. Now he returns to his central focus on the person who claims to have faith, but, in, uh, but the reality of their faith, he says, must be measured by a changed life. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do, he says. Faith is, in the end, something hidden. It cannot be measured by signing a doctrinal statement or by listening to someone's prayers. Its integrity can only be assessed by looking at their lives. James says, actually, the devil and all his cohorts could sign this church's statement of faith with absolute integrity. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Don't deceive yourself then. Don't make that excuse that faith and good works are separable. Of course there's a diversity of gifts. Of course some people are more gifted in some areas than, than, than others. But it is a dreadful distortion of the New Testament teaching on faith if we say we only need to believe. You know, all people who only believe are either in hell now or they're heading there. It is of no relevance then how long any of us has been coming to this church, how perfect our doctrine, doctrine is, how well we have deceived other Christians, how well we have deceived the pastor, how well we've deceived ourselves even. If we believe but do not have changed lives, we are marching towards our own destruction. You know, the only person who I can think of in the Bible who's told just believe was Jairus, who was told he must just believe to see his daughter brought back to life. But I tell you, though Jairus saw that miracle of his, his daughter coming to life again, if his life wasn't changed, he is in hell now. No matter what miracles Jesus did for him, don't let that excuse blind you. Our eternal future rests on it. Well, James has been very forthright on what saving faith isn't, hasn't he? Now he's going to tell us what saving faith is. (coughs) 
Saving faith isn't mere verbal orthodoxy which lacks good deeds, he says. No matter what excuses we make, that faith is a sham. But then he chooses to illustrate what saving faith is by using two Old Testament examples. We're going to run out of time. I think we're not going to be able to look at Rahab. You'll have to look at Rahab in the in your house groups when you study this passage. That's very, very precious, her example, because she was a person who was proverbial for her sinfulness. And yet by one act of faith, she is a hero in the Bible. What I want us to spend time looking at is Abraham, in verses 20 to 24. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. To understand what James is saying about Abraham, we need to look very carefully. First of all, we need to see that James accepts that Abraham was fully saved from the moment that he first believed God. Very important for us to understand that. In verse 23, James uh, quotes from an incident quite early in the story of Abraham, even before his son Isaac was uh, born. It's found in Genesis chapter 15. And at that point in, in Abraham's life, God promises Abraham he is going to have a son. And Abraham believes God. And that belief, that faith, is credited to him as righteousness by God. In other words, God who could see into Abraham's heart at that point saved Abraham. He was considered righteous because of that simple act of faith and belief. It's very important that we see that James is saying that. Because many people have read James's statement in verse 24 a person is justified by what he does and not by faith as alone, as if uh, it meant that uh, uh, James was contradicting specifically, for instance, the Apostle Paul's repeated statements that we are justified not because of what we have done, but simply because we have faith. But you see, to set James and Paul up against each other is to misunderstand them both. Both of them agree absolutely that there are no good works that any of us need to do in advance to earn our salvation. See, James is actually saying that. God has credited him as righteous from the moment that he believed God. But you see, both James and Paul agree on something else too. That no one can claim that they are saved, that they have faith, if their lives are not fundamentally transformed as a result. James actually puts that in this passage in a couple of ways. First of all, he says Abraham's great work of, uh, 
uh, faith that we're going to look at in a, in a moment, moment that he describes in verse uh, 21 there, that great work of faith fulfilled the statement in Genesis 15. Do you see how he actually says it? The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. It was true, actually, from the moment that it happened. But in Abraham's experience in his life, that truth, that decision that God had made in his mind and in his heart, needed to come to its fullness in Abraham's life. Abraham's life needed, had to authenticate his faith. Or his faith was actually never what people might have thought it was initially. God knew all along, says James. And his life needed to authenticate that. Or in verse 22, James describes uh, Abraham's uh, work of, of faith as completing his faith. Do you see that in verse uh, 22? His faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. A newborn baby is fully human from the moment that it is born. But that baby must grow up. It must develop muscles and speech and learn and so on until finally it's an adult. <coughs> if we see a newborn baby and watch that baby over 30 years remain exactly as it is, we will have a growing certainty in our hearts that it's not a real baby at all. It must be some very sophisticated doll, mustn't it? Because it's absolutely impossible for a real newborn baby to stay like that for 30 years. You see, it needed to be complete. Faith that is born in the moment that we cry, that simple cry of trust, must grow. There is an inextricable link, says, says uh, James, between faith and works. You see, uh, the first half of verse 22, this, his faith and his actions were working together, he says. Why is that? Why is there such a, an inextricable link? See, many people have been inclined to think that that connection is a connection of ought. They say, you claim to have faith, so you ought to be different. James is not saying that. No, he's not saying that that is the way that faith and works are connected in the Christian life. No, he says the connection is more profound than that. Faith must issue in works, not by a power of ought, but because we are different. Not because we ought to be different. The moment that Abraham believed, he was a new creation. He was something new. He was regenerate, as uh, the theologians like to call it. The very heart of him was made new, was transformed. And God knew that what he had recreated and that moment was bound to grow with the same certainty that you put a seed into the ground and it will grow up into a plant. 
with the same certainty that, that, that when a baby is conceived, it will grow. With the same certainty that you drop a drop of water and it will fall through the air. If those things do not happen, and you have not got real faith, James picks uh, this one action of Abraham's to try to help us to see what was the essence of Abraham's faith, what really made him different. It's actually a very painful incident because God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. The incident seems terribly, terribly cruel. How could God tell Abraham to do such a terrible thing? But you see, there was no vindictiveness in that. God actually didn't require the life of Abraham's son. But what he did require was the faith that was prepared to give it up. Because he knew that for Abraham to have real faith, he needed to have no other person or no other thing higher in his affections than God himself. Abraham was, Abraham's faith was completed when he showed that he had that absolute commitment to God and God alone in his life. And that faith was not just the faith that Abraham needed to express. We need to express just the same faith. Do you remember what Jesus said? Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Faith which holds anyone or anything more precious than God and Christ is not saving faith. Why? Why is that? Is that because God's some, some insecure, jealous, cruel dictator? Does he, does he actually reveal in that moment when he asks Abraham to give up his son that he's, he's got a bloodlust? No, it's not that at all. It's that God can see that if we hang on to anything in this life, as being more precious than eternity, then we are absolutely trapped. We are like that uh, uh, proverbial monkey. Remember that you can trap by putting a nut into a narrow-necked bottle and then tying the bottle to the ground. And that monkey will put his hand in and grab the nut and he will not be able to get the fist out and he will not let go. That's what happens to people, says James. If we put anything above God, if we will not let go of anything, we are trapped. And the way he can make us free is by saying, let go. Hebrews 11 actually explains exactly that. But Abraham saw even the death of his son 
as no eternal loss. We're told that he reasoned that God could raise him from the dead. In other words, he had such confidence in God, not just for this life, but for beyond this life. That he was prepared to be obedient to God was more important to him than temporarily, for a moment, to try to pretend that he had his son safe. He had to see that God would keep him and his son secure even beyond death if he was prepared to trust God. That is true faith. True faith is a confidence in God which obeys God for eternity's sake. True faith sees no eternal loss in obeying God, even though there may be great loss in the short term. And that faith cannot come to you and I naturally. There is no natural way that eternity can be more important to us than tomorrow. There is no natural way that obedience to God can be more important to us than our normal instincts for, for self-preservation. There is no natural way that we can be turned from being people who live for reward for ourselves and for those we love tomorrow to being those who live for reward for ourselves and those we love in eternity. It will not happen naturally to any one of us. We can learn everything we like. We can go out of this door and try to do everything we like. But that perspective will not happen to any one of us unless God miraculously makes us new. Right in our hearts. Right at our core unless God opens our eyes and says, do not hang on because you will lose eternally. I beg you, please don't leave this place thinking that's an interesting interpretation. Thinking, oh, that... that Maybe that's his faith, but that's not mine. That is what faith is. That is what Christian faith is. And if you if you don't feel that you have that, then then don't think for a moment about all the things you can stack up to argue against James. Ask God to give you that faith. Ask God to give you a faith which looks at eternity and desires and longs for that reward and that blessing and that, that infinite gain. Do you remember he started off by saying, what advantage is there? What advantage is there? People with faith say there is every advantage in investing in heaven and none in investing solely in now. That's what faith is for James and for every other writer in the Bible. 
you have not got that, ask God to do that in your heart because it will revolutionize you. It will change you. It will fill you. You know, James calls, calls, um, calls us in verse 20, not foolish man, he says empty man. He sees people who do not have that faith as being empty. And he wants us to be full. Now, I have this, this terrible feeling that the world is full of Christians, mostly, but, but of people who profess faith, who live in terrible fear of what cost it may mean for them. And so, actually, they can never be absolutely confident they have faith because of warnings like this in James chapter 2. Let me give you an example. I have a friend who, whose wife was a professing believer, and uh, after a number of years, finally, he professed faith. She, subsequently, denied faith. I don't know for her at all whether she was ever really a believer or not. And he was left on his own. He was the only believer in that household. And I saw his spiritual vitality slipping away from him over a period of years. And he spoke to me once about it and he said, he said, you may not like what I'm going to say, but I have to say it, it's the truth. My relationship with my wife is more important than my relationship with God. And in that moment I knew, unless that changed, she was lost. Whether he had had ever professed real faith, or whether in fact he was just uh, expressing that his relationship with his wife was important when he first professed faith. I don't know. But now, I can't be at all confident that he has a faith at all. Well, let me give you another example, a more positive one. More than a decade ago, I was in Nepal for three months, and uh, while I was there, a missionary family, who'd only been there for a tiny bit longer than me, came just a few weeks before me, saw their youngest child uh, fall ill with dysentery and then, in a couple of days, die. And uh, they returned to, to Germany to mourn. And I, re I remember after praying for that family in a group, a senior missionary said to me, she said, they'll be back. She'd seen it before. And she knew that actually when people, when real Christians come face to face with the greatest of all losses, it's then that a Christian realizes the greater loss still 
to turn their back on Christ. I remember the story, you may have heard it, of a missionary lady who was at a missionary uh, weekend at a church and at the front there was a young man who was a student and uh, she spoke about some amazing things the Lord had done in her life. And that young man said to his friend in a stage whisper, young people aren't very subtle, are they? He said, I'd give everything I had to have a testimony like this. She heard him. She said, young man, I did. That is faith. That is faith that changes the world. That is faith that fills us up so that we are not empty. That is real faith. You know, uh, Jim Elliot told us how not to be a fool, didn't he? He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, it's possible that there are people amongst us who now, at this moment, who've realised they've never had the faith that James is talking about. Lord, for us, we pray. Take away all our pride, all our excuses, all our defences. Make our hearts new. Lord, there are many of us here who have forgotten one way or another what the heart of real faith is. Trust in you which invests in eternity and is prepared to accept any cost to see you in eternity. Oh Lord, we pray. Strip away all those things that left us in fear and give us faith. Make us from this moment, Lord, forever different. so that when we finally meet you face to face, it will be as those whose hearts are utterly filled with praise, utterly transformed with joy, as those who can say, now there is a crown waiting for me, In Christ's name we pray.